Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Because we got the alternative energy right. making our free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, my name's Mara. This episode of the Radioactive Show was produced on the unceded lands of the Boonarung people for 3CR Melbourne. This week, we hear an interview about the sentencing of two of the seven ploughshare activists in the United States. 3CR's Jan Bartlett spoke to Brian Terrell, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, on the 27th of October, 2020. On the 15th of October, a Catholic activist priest was sentenced to 33 months in a federal prison for conspiracy, destruction of federal property, destruction of naval property and trespassing, and three years of supervised release. A fellow activist was sentenced the following day to 14 months imprisonment, three years of supervised release, and a share of the 33000 in restitution fees. To explain who these two men are and the dastardly crimes they committed, on the 4th of October in 2018 at St Mary in Georgia, I spoke with a friend and fellow peace activist, Brian Terrell, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, whose home is a small farm in Iowa. Brian, I've detailed the sentences. Can you outline the activities of these two men and five others on a day in October 2018? It was October 4th. Two years ago was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Seven friends went into the Trident base at Kings Bay, Georgia, and this is the Atlantic base of the Trident submarine, Trident nuclear submarine with nuclear missiles. There's another one in base in Washington on the Pacific, and then uh, the Atlantic base, the North Atlantic uh, in Scotland at Fastlane, Scotland. The United Kingdom has its own fleet of these Trident submarines. They went in at night and did what even the uh, judge admitted was a symbolic and sacramental act of disarmament. They uh, came with a message that you know, Dr. King said the ultimate logic of, of racism is, is war, and they, their message was the ultimate logic of trident is omnicide and they wanted to just talk about repentance and they they went to uh, one place that was they call a shrine the the, the, the navy called it a display where they have actual you know uh, concrete statues of these missiles and it's kind of strange that all the controversy and in the southern united states especially about the monuments to racists and for you know the confederate soldiers who and generals who were defending slavery uh and these many of these monuments are coming down here you have a place where there's monuments in honor of what is really omnicidal uh, the, uh, a new word you know that no one could have come up with before a nuclear weapon you know, the death of everything all of these were um christian catholics and they went with the Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah saying that you know, to turn swords into plowshares. 
and that isn't something that uh, the way the, the the language is it's put uh, in the imperative, and it's not something passive. It's not something that's going to happen. The swords are not going to magically turn into plowshares. We are enjoined to do this uh, in one way or another, and this is how they chose chose to do it. So they were arrested eventually, and I, and this this figures into the sentencing. It's it's kind of important that. Although this is one of the you know the places where these nuclear missiles and submarines, these missiles that can end all life on Earth, are stored and guarded, they were there for several hours, very close to the to the missiles, and the base police passed them several times over hours, and finally when they came and they saw what and just moved on, and then after a few hours. Uh, one of the cops came over and looked at what happened and he kind of laughed and he said, I guess, you know, you guys are in a bit of trouble. <laughs> and and this matters because a part of the sentencing for the two men who were sentenced last week was concerning their sentence was in, enhanced. There's a, a point program in federal court uh, for crimes being committed and things that the judge is supposed to consider in sentencing. It was said that they had put put themselves and other people in danger, that, that there was in danger of loss of life, which, although there were signs saying you know, lethal force authorized, and people were surely thought it was worth the risk, the idea that there could have been some kind of altercation that could have ended up in a death with somebody figured in their calculations. But of course, the calculation of what would happen if there was a mishap with the nuclear missiles, which again could be um, catastrophic. Whole parts of the planet could be made uninhabitable with, with, a, with a mistake, you know, with a mishap with the missiles. So, yeah, they were detained and held for each of the, each of the um, defendants stayed in prison, stayed in jail and uh, in remand for several months at least, before being released uh, on, after posting cash bond and being on the ankle monitors and very, very close supervision. Father Steve Kelly, Jesuit priest, has been in jail since then and is still jailed today, mostly because of a um, another charge violating probation in Washington State, which is at the other of the U.S. Trident bases. Yeah, then... Um, Elizabeth McAllister was sentenced a while ago to, I believe, 17 months to, to, and she had spent that time, that much time in in jail. And then the two other men this week, and there's four more in November. The sentencing has been postponed several times due to the COVID pandemic for the trial and other hearings we've had. A number of people. I've been to Georgia, I think, three times in support of the of the plowshares, and would have really loved to have been there for both Liz's sentencing and and for these. I think, but I was able to listen to they they put it over a telephone number, and we I was able to monitor the sentencing over the telephone. Would you like to talk a little bit more about the what the judge had to say? Well, it's a it was a very 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 strange scene because I think 
these two hearings were ostensibly about punishing these two criminals, I think the judge, Judge Sagadby Wood, and she is a very relatively young for a judge, and uh, I think really out of her depth. The point of these hearings was more the exoneration of Judge Lisa Godby Wood than the sentencing and punishing of two convicted criminals. In Patrick's case, they were saying there were these enhancements and the fact they put their lives, own lives and lives in danger of others in danger was an enhancement. So they were, the judge was supposed to be stricter on this. So Patrick got a number of enhancements and one of them was too about accepting responsibility. And this is this is kind of crazy because Bill Pack especially he wore a camera on his hat and videoed with a running commentary the whole thing, which is what the state the government used in prosecuting them. At no point did any of these people say that they didn't do it. But what the government wants is for people to say that they're sorry and they want remorse. But that's not what the statute says. You know, the, the language is just a, it's taking responsibility. But of course, they didn't feel bad about it. They did, uh, had done nothing wrong. So the judge made all these, it looks very, very, like things were going to go very bad for Patrick. But then she gave him a sentence that was much lower than what the guidelines would have allowed, which she can do, but she has to explain her her reasonings, and her reasoning was pretty much that she wanted to be a nice person. So she was very, very strict and looking at everything in the very worst light up until that point. And then she surprised everybody by uh, giving him what he had, he had uh, 14 months. Well, yeah, he has to surrender himself to a federal prison within the next 90 days. Now, what she did was very, with Steve Kelly, and Steve Kelly is a Jesuit priest. He's 71 years old. He's been in jail since since this action more than two years ago. ago. He knows he had it coming. He knows he he took this risk knowingly. He spent more than 10 years in prison already. He knew that he was going to go to jail for this. And she gave um, Steve 33 months. He's done 30 months already. And the offer good behavior, he but I think there it's his charge in Washington that they don't know what they're going to do with yet, that he might be for another sentencing. But it's, yeah, for these judges and prosecutors, I find these trials fascinating because the judges and prosecutors are confronting people very, very often who are, in many cases, at least as educated as they are, which is a rare situation. Very often they are, especially in the case of, of Steve Kelly, I think, probably has spent more time in trial than the judge or the prosecutor, know their way, they know the law. And even if some of them might describe themselves as anarchists, they also, in a way, have more respect for the law because this, the, the law is, uh, to these judges and prosecutors, it's, it's just a tool and they can be... You know, the, you know, the concept that uh, destroying the whole world is, is legal. Once you do that, then there isn't any, really isn't any law. There isn't any, there's no moral code between us as human beings. There's, there's, there's no, there's nothing to hold us together. So, so really in this case, and, and 
Patrick had uh, one of his, he's got, I believe, eight children <laughs> and one of his adult sons and, a, and an adult daughter spoke very eloquently. So that was a very, very powerful. These hearings were very, very powerful. You know, the world is in a whole lot of trouble and I don't know what good is going to come out of this. I, I don't know what's going to work. <laughs> I don't know what's going to save us. Uh, but I really believe that these the actions of these friends and people with them are absolutely essential uh, for our survival as human beings. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We're listening to an interview recorded by Jan Bartlett with Brian Terrell of Voices for Creative Nonviolence about the sentencing of plowshare activists in the US. Did Steve and Patrick have the opportunity to speak at their sentencing? Oh, yes. They both spoke. A, a lot of it was they spoke to these different enhancements. They argued about, because the prosecution were saying one point held against them, and they they argued them not so much for for the sake of getting less time, but just in the sake for the sake of thirty. For example, the the idea that they didn't take responsibility for for what they did, and they they certainly did. You know, there's very few criminals who show up in court taking responsibility as, as much as they have to, to, to provide the court with photographs and to admit everything. They didn't deny anything that had been alleged against them. They simply denied that any of it was against the law, but they didn't deny doing any of it. And also the, the fact that they were putting themselves or others in danger when you know, they clearly, as much as anything is risky, you know, they did what they could to minimize that danger and certainly the the police even as they pointed out even during the trial uh, military police who had arrested them you know testified that their demeanor was peaceful and friendly and and not threatening there are four others still incarcerated are they waiting sentencing no the other the others steve was the only one still in prison in jail in georgia at this point, the others are still at large. And this is something that Patrick spoke about, that this time, I think they were all in jail for, you know, each of them did, did months, different amounts of time before they agreed to leave. And actually, Liz McAllister was in jail for 17 months, and she refused to except the, the, the conditions for release, which was like you know, to wear an ankle monitor. I think they all had to be in their homes at seven o'clock in the evening and you know, a curfew. Their ankle monitor would hook up to the telephone and GPS and everything would tell if they were, you know, and, 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 and they couldn't travel outside of their, their local community. Um, they couldn't see certain people. You know, these conditions are very, very onerous. Several of them were not able to respond to family emergencies and and things, and, and and that this was not taken in consideration. Patrick told some of things way that this had been affected him, you know, personally. That that wasn't considered a part of the punishment. We've been punished for 30 months, <laughs> whether we've been in jail or whether we've been in, you know, on the supervised release with the ankle monitors and everything that. It, that ought to be considered in the uh, in the sentencing, and I think the judge's position was that no, that that was that they were privileged, 
you know, not be locked up in jail. So, Has anyone been able to visit Steve in the last six months? He's had a few visitors, uh, mostly by mostly attorneys. It's been um, a very hard thing for him. Uh, and I believe that other visitors have to be, I believe that what they're doing there in Glen County is a television kind of thing where you visit, you have to go to the jail and you can have a very brief time on a screen, uh, but you don't actually get to see or certainly not touch your incarcerated friends and loved ones. But this jail is particularly, you know, there's no outdoor recreation. You know, Steve has not been in the sunshine or fresh air in all these months. When we saw him, a year ago, in I was at his trial. It was just about a year ago this month. You know, he'd been in many months already, and he, because he, he was very, very pale. Another hardship is at this jail. He is only allowed the only mail he's allowed to receive or send out is on a small prepaid postcard, and you know nothing can be glued on it. There can't be any paint on it. You can't. You, know, you can just write on this little tiny postcard the message, and that's all he can send send out are these postcards. So you can't send them newspapers. Um, he can get books; they have to be new from direct from a publisher. But he can't get any. Couldn't this whole time he hasn't been able to get any newspapers or news? Because Steve often, when he's in prison, for, you know, previously um, in uh, the jail situation pre-sentencing, he's not required to work, but once he's sentenced and sent to a federal prison, which he may be for these next months, um, you're required to do your assigned work. And in the federal system, you get paid like the last time I was in seven years ago was 11 cents an hour. And actually they're, they're, they're each being assessed altogether $33,501 restitution to the, to the Navy for the destruction that they did. And they're going to be taking that out and they're in prison and working. They're going to be taking it out of their prison pay. <laughs> well, they're not going to get very much out of that. But Steve refuses to work for the system. And he spends his time in solitary. He hasn't this, these last 30 months. That hasn't been an issue. I heard somebody once ask him, how do you spend your time in solitary confinement? And he is not like me. <laughs> I'd be climbing the walls, but uh, Steve just said there are not enough hours in the day because he is so brilliant and he has read so much and he remembers so much and he is thinking and he is planning and he is praying and he is meditating. And just from his own inner resources, he's able to fruitfully fill a day and one day after another and, and eventually years and years of you know, he's you know, truly a contemplative soul, uh, a very holy man. Well, it's just as well, isn't it, the, the treatment that they get? Yes, well, you need inner resources, and you also need, you need friends. You need a lot of support. So, you know, especially when in a situation where you are in solitaire and the only acts of affection you can really exchange are little tiny postcards. <laughs> Well, peace and anti-war activism will continue despite sentencings of people like this. And over the past weekend in the US, there have been thousands and thousands, if not millions of people 
taking part in a weekend of protests. You've been part of that, haven't you? I have been, not not as I like with the, with the COVID restrictions. And I live in a rural area, far from any kind of urban area where there's things going on. We've had small protests even here in our little town of 26 people. But uh, I have gone each, you know, Kansas City is over 100 miles and Des Moines is just about 100 miles. And I was with, uh, uh, on Sunday, I took the trip to Des Moines to be with a uh small group of people there have been as in many places around the United States there have been um, protests mainly about over the issue of racism and this one was at the Iowa Supreme Court and about disparities in, in uh, law enforcement and prisons for, for people of color which in Iowa is particularly bad and I want to say I, I, I misquoted Dr. King and I want to I want to clear that up what he said was the ultimate logic of racism is genocide. And what our friends said, the ultimate logic of, of Trident is omnicide. And I think the racism issue here is, is very, you know, it, it's, it, it's something that goes, that covers all these issues. I, when I got to Des Moines and went to the, the parking lot at the Supreme Court and got out, I, I met a, a friend and that was one reason why I went to was to see to see friends. Like I said, this these kind of support in these times. And he has had a um, sweatshirt, you know, to support it, to support the protesting the bombing of of Gaza. What else? And I had a sign saying "Demilitarize the police." And uh, my friend said, "All these all these issues all come together around uh, racism is at the core of it." And, and I think that's really, that's really very true. So, yeah, this is a very strange time. It's a very, the COVID restrictions on top of it all, but it's, I'm really astonished to be living at a time when people just in the mainstream are discussing whether we need to have a militarized police force, whether we need to have police as we've understood them, or should we find something else? Uh, I really hope uh, that the discussion shifts too to whether we should have a militarized military. <laughs> that the same, I think, what's happening in the streets of the United States is the war coming home. It's what we've been doing, you know, imposing on the on the rest of the world the violence that that has to come home. It has to come home to roost. What are the feelings in your area about Trump's nominee of Amy Coney Barrett? I've heard some very disturbing stories about the organizations, the far-right organizations that she is a member of. Yeah, it's, it's very distressing. And also the fact that this nomination is being pushed through so quickly at this time, right before, right before the election, when also where it's already talk about uh, Donald Trump contesting the results of the election if he loses to the Supreme Court to which uh, Amy Cohn Barrett would be a constituent member of. I wonder how she would decide. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, and, I, and I, I speak as a Catholic, that I find this organization's people of praise that she was to um, encountered them a few times over the years. It's very patriarchal and uh, very hierarchical. And it's, I did not to be 
so prejudicial is it's very difficult to imagine somebody being a part of this organization and and being capable about being being impartial because it's not impartiality is not not a trait that they propagate um, an honor. One thing that's that I, that I've found particularly disturbing, especially at a time like this, is in her hearings for confirmation, she was asked about what the constitutional rights in the First Amendment, what they entail. And they are, of course, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And she left out a very important part, especially at a time like this, because the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution also says, along with those rights, that Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people to peacefully assemble for redress of grievance. So we have a constitutional right to gather together and peacefully protest. And this is very disturbing at a time when um, uh, militarized police are very much uh, abridging the, the right of people to peacefully assemble, that even to the point of in Portland and places like that, federal police in uniforms without any insignia in driving vehicles, without any marking, you're picking up people off the street and bringing them to questioning and putting them in jail. You know, police shooting people on the street, often with impunity, that, you know, to have someone who wants to be a Supreme Court justice up for nomination in October 2020, who doesn't recognize the right of people to gather to protest. Very, very disturbing. Uh, thinking about these nuclear weapons, it was 2015. It was President Obama speaking about nuclear weapons. He called for what he called stockpile stewardship for our aging nuclear weapons and life extension. Is interesting. Just at a time when it's one of the first times in since people have been keeping these statistics that the life expectancy of an American citizen is actually going down. But a trillion dollars he earmarked for the extension, life extension to nuclear weapons. They have a shelf life, and to, to develop new nuclear weapons. This was under President Obama, and even though Ronald uh, Donald Trump has been trying to erase. Obama's legacy and destroy everything that Obama did, anything good that he did. He has not been trying to erase this part of the Obama legacy. You know, the, the drive to make new nuclear weapons continues. We have problems we're not going to vote ourselves out of. It's deeper than that. And I think this is what the uh, plowshares are trying, trying to show, that the ordinary conventional political methods that we've been using are not commensurate with with the threats that we're facing. It's going to take take a bit more than voting every four years to change the direction that our country and really our planet is being headed in. Take more drastic actions than that. Thanks so much to Jan Bartlett for sharing her interview with Brian Terrell of Voices for Creative Nonviolence about the sentencing of plowshare activists in the United States. To learn more about this organisation, check out their website at vcnv.org. That's vcnv.org. Thanks for listening to The Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at 3cr.org.au slash radioactive. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com.
The Radioactive Show was produced on Boonarung land with the support of Friends of the Earth's ACE Nuclear Free Collective for 3CR Melbourne. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear, peace and energy issues.